right. Good morning, beloved. Great to see everyone here this morning. I want to invite you to join me and turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we have been going verse by verse, epistle by Peter. In fact, this morning, we'll be finishing up the second chapter as we've been learning about our calling as uh, disciples of the Lord, Jesus Christ, to live in a kind of life that manifests him in the midst of an ungodly culture and what exactly that looks like. And beginning in verse 21, Peter reveals three aspects of Christ's suffering and how we as followers of Carlo in his steps. Now, the last time that we were together, we considered how Christ sets the standard on how we are to suffer. And as Peter continues in these verses, he demonstrates how Christ is not only our standard in suffering, but he is also our substitute, and then finally, he is our shepherd. So, he is our standard, our substitute, and shepherd. But let's begin today by first reading our text, and then we can see how each of these verses do apply. So again, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse and here now is the reading of God's living and infallible word. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep turned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls Now, in the second half of chapter 2, Peter has been unfolding to us elements of our Christian life or our Christian conduct, what that should look like. And we as um, aliens and strangers, he calls us, in this world conduct ourselves when dealing with unjust suffering. And here in our verses this morning, Peter uses the unjust sufferings of Christ as our example. So Christ is, again, our teacher. And that was point number one that we began the last time we were together, as here we see in these perfect standard for suffering. He is our example. Christ sets the standard for suffering. And that is precisely what Peter says. Notice with me verse 21. He writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example such you might follow in his steps. Now, in what way is the death of Christ our example? Well, We've already covered the basic idea the last time that we were together, but 
Let me be a little bit more specific as we look at this once again. When Jesus died on the cross, he was executed as a criminal. Question, had he ever a crime? No. Was he guilty of any wrongdoing? No. Was he guilty of any sort of a trespass? Did he ever have an evil thought? No. Did he ever say an evil word? No. Was he guilty of any sin? No. Was it an unjust execution? Yes. Christ was unjustly executed. He was murdered. Execution ever perpetrated on any human being? Yes. We learn from this. Jesus shows us that a person can be in the will of God. He was. That a person can be greatly gifted by God and called for. A person can be beloved of God. He was. A person can be perfectly righteous. He was. A person can be totally obedient to God in absolutely every facet of his life, he was. A person can believe in perfectly, and yet he suffered. And unjust. He was misunderstood. He was misrepresented. He was hated. He was persecuted. And he was murdered. And what is the point? Christ in his death sets for us the standard on how we are to respond to unjust suffering. He is the perfect illustration. It is possible, then, to be perfect and yet still suffer. Jesus did. And along with that, let me just say this. It is extremely shallow theology. And it is utterly ungodly Bible interpretation to say, as some contemporary false teachers say, that Christians who suffer are somehow out of the will of God. That is absurdity. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, 14, Peter tells us, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. And again, what does it say right here in, in our verse? In, in verse 21, he's talking about unjust suffering. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so you might follow in it. When a believer suffers, he's not claiming the available resources or that he or she just doesn't have quite enough faith. And that's why they're not being healed. It's just foolishness. It is heresy. If Jesus Christ, who was perfectly in the will of God perfectly gifted for ministry by God, perfectly 
loved by God, perfectly righteous in the sight of God, and his faith in God was absolutely perfect, and he still suffered unjustly, then what makes us think that we who are so... Or what foolish, ridiculous theology would concoct the idea that to suffer means you're out of God's will. That must be what it is. Was Jesus out of God's will when he suffered? Of course not. Or more than that, was he out of God's will when he went and died on the cross? Absurd thought. Now, the surprising truth here is that the righteous will suffer. And the righteous do suffer for their goodness and their godliness. And in the midst of that, they can look to Christ, who sets the standard for us on how we are to respond when dealing with unfurring. And that's the whole point here. It was his path to glory, and now it is our path to glory through suffering. You know when you know somebody who has never suffered. Notice what it says in verse 21. It says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now that word example is a wonderful word in the Greek. I've got some really doozies this week. Hupa ogromos. <laughs> and it literally means a writing to be copied. It's the idea of getting a... Um, maybe a wax see-through piece of, of paper. And uh, remember when you were little learning how to write, maybe learning to trace the letters of underneath that. It's the idea of following a pattern. Following a pattern. And that's who Christ is. He's the example by which we are to trace our life over. Okay? He sets for us the standard. And then notice what it says next in verse 21, so that you might follow in his steps. That word steps is the word ichnos. It means um, footprint, uh, footprints, plural. Okay? In fact, it means tracks, like um, footprints along the, the beach in the, in the sand. So this is what you have been called for, that you might follow in his steps steps. We not only follow Christ in his life, but as well. Because the path to glory is the path of suffering. Now, admittedly, here in the West, most of us haven't experienced any kind of uh, severe persecution in that form of suffering. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are suffering a lot more than we are. And uh, many are suffering in ways differently than, than we suffer. But mark it. Those who walk the path of righteousness will follow the path through suffering. How do I know that? You're walking and following in Christ's steps as he commands us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, no uncertainty there, will be persecuted. If we are moving in the same direction that Christ moved, we're going to experience to some extent 
the same unjust suffering. And so Peter wants us in his first century um, believers to look closely at how Christ responded. This is something they were dealing with. Remember, they're under the emperor Nero, who is burning Christians like human candles. Now, keep in mind that Christ suffered a lot in his life. But never did he suffer as much as he did as on the cross. And so that's where Peter takes us. He takes us right to the foot of the cross, right into the scene of Christ's most brutal suffering, the cross of Calvary. And he does that using the prophetic words and themes out of Isaiah chapter 53, the most significant Old Testament chapter on the suffering servant the suffering Messiah. Notice with me what he says in verse 22. In everything that Christ suffered, still, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This verse is being drawn out of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And it describes... Christ's response to his unjust suffering. Peter says first, he, meaning Christ, committed no sin. Committed no sin. Now, if you want to turn to Isaiah 53, you can mark it or put your finger in Isaiah 53 or in 1 Peter. We're going to go back and forth through the rest of our lesson here. But I want you to see what Isaiah says. So turn to Isaiah 53. I'll have it up here on the screen. Isaiah 53, 9 is the verse that Peter is referring to. And notice what he says there in the second half of the verse. See where it says, although he had done no what? What? Violence. Violence. Um, Isaiah is using the Hebrew word, kwamas which means violence or doing what is wrong. Now, if you were to have a copy of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translate Isaiah's word here as lawlessness. Lawlessness. And the reason why they did that is that the translators understood the word violence here means sin. Although he had done no sin. He had done no violence in the sense that he never violated God's law. Christ never violated a single law. So let's read the whole verse together now that we understand this. Isaiah 53, 9, the prophet looking into the future says of the coming Messiah, and they made his grave with the wicked... That is, he was crucified with the, with the thieves and with that was his tomb. Although he had done no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And we know this is exactly what he means. Because the Holy Spirit comes right out and says it, quoting Isaiah 53.9 in 1 Peter 2 verse 22. Notice again how this is it. He committed no, what? Sin. 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. No matter how unjustly Christ himself, no sin. And the Holy Spirit confirms here, that is what Isaiah is saying, he had done no sin. Christ was flawless. He was perfect. Even as he humbled himself in his humiliation, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of what theologians for centuries have called the impeccability of Christ defended. The impeccability of Christ. He went. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it said, He was a lamb without. And though he was unjustly despised, rejected, hated, and eventually savagely murdered, yet through it all, he committed no sin. He committed no sin. Further, Peter says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That isn't enough for him to say that he committed no sin. It is. But the second verse, because where is it that sin most easily shows up, right? Out of our, out of our mouths. The heart of a man expresses, but the mouth of Jesus uttered no deceit. Now that word for deceit, is the word doulos, and it refers to any type of um, sin of the tongue. The tongue sin, you ask? The tongue lies. The tongue, the tongue dislikes. could go on and on. Pastor Rick talked last week from James about the in gossip. Gossip, a deadly sin of the tongue, and, and when it's not tamed, it can affect an entire body. But no wickedness or deceit ever came out of the Lord's mouth. He committed no sin, and that means by word, by thought, or by deed. Flawless, blameless, perfect. Even hanging on the cross said, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for. But this man has done nothing wrong. Even Pilate said, What evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt. No jury could ever find him guilty of anything. His all accusations were lies. Chapter 8, verse 46. Which one of you convict me of sin? Yes, the religious leaders. Go ahead. Which one of you wants to legitimately accuse me of sin? Go for it. And of course, none of them did. There was no sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Christ was absolutely sinless. He bore the penalty of our sin, but he himself knew no sin. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer to the Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, as we are yet without sin. Notice, he was tempted. Christ was legitimately tempted in every respect as we are, yet he was without sin. Another proof text that temptation itself is not a sin. Christ was tempted, yet 
Hebrews 7, verse 26, a few chapters later. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, son of God. Both uh, fully man and fully God came down out of heaven. How many times did John chapter 6 say that? About eight or ten times. Down out of heaven. He walked in our shoes, put on flesh, yet he remained holy, innocent, unstained, and separated. Amazing. Amazing. The uh, apostle John, who also witnessed, witnessed Christ and all of his persecution and unjust suffering that he went through, says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, so scripture is absolutely clear on this. In all circumstances of his life, in all the injustices, in all the false accusations, he never sinned in anything he thought, he never sinned in anything he did, he never sinned in anything he said, thought, said, and did. Thought, word, and deed. Christ was without sin. And it is truly amazing when you consider all the abuse, all the cruelty that he faced, that came against him, all of the physical torture that he suffered, and yet he was without sin. Wow. And because he never retaliated in a sinful way, he is our perfect model. He sets the standard on how we are to respond to unjust suffering. Now, in verse 23, Peter's mind goes back to Isaiah 53 once again. And he knows now that Isaiah 53 is a messianic prophecy that looked ahead to who the Christ would be, or he wouldn't be assigning Isaiah 53 in his epistle. Now, reading the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, this is about the Messiah to come, and I walked with him. Think about that. And so, and he uses scripture to teach scripture. And that's what we try to do at the cross. Use the Bible to teach the Bible. And he sees in the life of Christ it, this prophecy being fulfilled in the person and sufferings of Christ. Notice first what Peter says in verse 23. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Okay. Now, if you still have your finger in Isaiah 53, look at what the prophet wrote 600 years before earth. This has allusions to Isaiah 53 over it. You know this verse. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not what? Has led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's what Isaiah said. And what is it that Peter said when he was reviled? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This is the perfect standard. This is the footprints that he's left for us that we might follow in his steps. Confess. These are extremely difficult steps for me to follow. <laughs> if I'm being honest, when I'm reviled, 
when I am falsely accused, there tends to rise up within me, within me a desire to retaliate. Sometimes in thought, um, other times in an unfit word that comes out of my mouth. I can't even imagine what it is to never commit a sin, right? To never have anything come out of my mouth that's not God-honoring. To be reviled in ways that we can't even comprehend what Christ went through. And yet never to revile in return. To unjustly suffer and yet utter no threats. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Think about it. He, he was under constant and repeated persecution. They were always coming after the Lord. And they were provoking him, right? Hoping to, to drive him to the breaking point. But they could not make him break his silence. And they could not make any sin come out of his mouth. Notice also what it says uh, there in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Um, if you have an NIV, it translates as insults. It's the verb loidoreo. Uh, <laughs> it means to use a abusive or, or vile language against someone. It literally means to pile it on somebody, to continually throw this vile and abusive language. That's why it's in the, the present participle, and, and it indicates that it was being done repeatedly to Christ. His accusers were repeatedly reviling him, our Lord's response. He did not revile in, re in return. And Jesus continued this all throughout his trials. Remember in um, Matthew 26, when uh, Jesus is, is brought in before Caiaphas and um, the entire council of the Sanhedrin, he's being tried unjustly. Uh, they bring in these false witnesses to falsely testify against him. The high priest even stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus, verse 63, remained silent. Even in verse 67, when they spit in his face and struck him, and in verse 68, as others slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Even then, he remains silent. And that wasn't it. Then they led him from Caiaphas to Pilate in the next chapter, Matthew 27 and verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And Jesus did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. And then they brought him before King Herod. Luke 23, 9 tells us, And he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, and mocking him and dressing him in a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate. And again, he never says a word. 
His example is the perfect standard for us. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And think about it. He is holy God. He is holy God. He could have given some pretty serious threats. Could he not? Called down a few of his angel friends. I mean, he upholds the entire universe by the power of his word. One word from his mouth could have blasted them all to eternal hell. First, and had the ground open up and swallow them up into the pit, but he never threatened them. And when he finally did speak about them, he said, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. <laughs> you see, it was for sinners just like them that he was dying for on that cross. And he knew that the path to glory was through the path of suffering. So he accepted it without retaliation. He accepted it without revenge. For it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. <laughs> That's what Jesus did. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. See, there's a blessing in this for us. Now, understandably, you might be thinking, how on earth am I supposed to do this? <laughs> I mean, how can I be suffering in an unjust way and just not retaliate, right? Well, if you want to see the secret sauce, follow to the end of verse 23 and notice how Jesus did it. Peter says, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the secret that's the story. That's how Jesus was able to forgive even his own murderers. Because he drew his strength from complete trust in the Father's ultimate uh, purpose to accomplish his perfect justice on his behalf and against his hateful rejectors. That's what Jesus did. He continually kept on entrusting himself to the Father who he knows will ultimately bring about perfect justice. He is perfectly just. And so in every unjust suffering that our Lord experienced, he just kept handing himself over, handing himself over to the Father until finally on that cross, he said these final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What's he do? He, he commits himself once again to the Father with his final words. Even in death, he committed himself fully into the loving hands of the Father. His confidence was in the perfect righteousness of God. And now, having risen from the dead, defeating sin and death, Christ is our perfect example in suffering for righteousness sets the standard for us to entrust ourselves to God as our righteous judge. Our righteous judge. 
And if you want to see someone, an actual man, a fallen man like us, who, who followed Christ's example faithfully and walked in the Lord's steps, because I know, reading this, we're like, yeah, I, I just can't do that. Well, look at how Stephen, a, a man just like us, look how Stephen died in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. You know the story of Stephen. It says in verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, right, they dragged him outside of the city to stone him to death. He called out to the Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, listen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, asleep, he, he died. Stephen, with his eyes fixed on Jesus, followed the standard that Jesus had set. He not only died, but he forgave those just like Christ who had killed him himself. Stephen followed Christ, our perfect standard in suffering. But there is a greater way that Christ suffered for us. He suffered not only as our standard, but next I want you to look at the fact that he suffered as our perfect substitute. Our substitute. Notice verse 24. Mark it. One of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You have been healed. Amen. Here we see the glorious doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement. His substitutionary atonement. It details that Christ became our substitute. He's the one who stepped in and took our punishment. He paid the debt. This is the core heart of the Christian gospel. I like what Charles Spurgeon had to say. He said, the heart of the gospel is redemption. And the essence of redemption is substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They who preach this truth preach the gospel. But they who preach not the atonement have missed the soul and substance of the divine message. And I couldn't agree more. In fact, we could safely say that all other elements of salvation that we talk about merely surround this one core truth. That Christ died for us. It's referred to as the great exchange. The greatest exchange. <laughs> His perfect righteousness for our dreaded sin. I'll take that bet a hundred out of a hundred times. Yes, please. That's what he bore. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And that's what Peter sees here. He is our substitute. He is our substitute. And it's the same thing that Paul saw earlier when I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says the same thing. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Paul basically echoes Peter's words. Peter says it's a substitution. Peter, uh, Paul says it's, it's substitution. Paul also says in Galatians 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To put this simply, as I can put it, if Christ isn't my substitute, then I am still a condemned sinner. If Christ did not pay my penalty, then I must bear it. There is no other possibility. It is either him or me. But Paul says, he became a curse for us. Let's look at uh, verse 24 again and I want you to notice how it begins. He himself bore our sins. He himself is emphatic, and it means to emphasize that this is God in human flesh bearing our sins. He himself. <laughs> he chose to do it himself. Nobody has forced him. He's determined it himself. He himself bore our sins. The, the emphatic um, personal pronoun indicates he did it alone and it also indicates he did it voluntarily alone and voluntarily God took our sins when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world he came into the world to save his people from their sins Peter is simply affirming here that Jesus willingly took on himself sin. He himself, with no outside influences, bore our sins. That's the key. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 for a moment. Peter reiterates this same great truth of substitution. For Christ also died for sins once, for all the just, for the unjust. The just, for the unjust. He, the just, died as a substitute for us, the unjust. Again, we see he took our place. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look at uh, verse 24 um, again. See where it says he himself bore our sins in his body? What does that mean? Does that mean that he became a sinner? Because uh, Paul said back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we just looked at, for our sake he made him to be sin, to be sin who knew no sin. And, and here Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body. But that is not what they are saying. Peter and Paul are speaking to he took on the punishment. The punishment. He bore, he bore, he endured the judgment, the penalty the wages of our sin. Don't make Christ a sinner. 
the wages of sin? Death. He paid it. He defeated it. Christ bore that punishment. He bore our sins in his body. And it wasn't just uh, the physical death. He bore uh, an actual spiritual death as well. Not just physical, spiritual as well. It's why we see on the cross, Christ say, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. This is the cry of spiritual death. The only time he calls out God and not Father. He's calling God, there's separation. That is the cry. Spiritual death is total separation from God. He bore that for us. Praise be to God. <laughs> That's what Peter's talking about here. He bore our punishment of satisfying a holy and just God. The fact that the blameless, spotless, perfect Lamb of God bore our sins was one of the greatest truths in all of Scripture. Will you also notice in verse 24, the word tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The um, NAS and NIV translates it cross, which of course is correct. Uh, the ESV and, and others translate it tree. And they do that because the word that's used here is wood. Wood. It's got some Deuteronomy referrals possibly to it. But he himself bore our sins in his body on the wood. But why did he do that? Verse 24 says that he, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's because it doesn't say here that he did it that we might go to heaven. It doesn't say here that he did it in order that we might have peace. It doesn't say here that he did it in order that we might experience his love. He didn't do, he, he didn't do it for those reasons only. He did it, would you please notice, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He did it to transform us from sinners to saints. That is the righteousness of Christ. From darkness to light. He did it to change us. To regenerate us. He bore the in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's not just like forensic. It's not just... It's a real one. He took our place in order to transform us that we might die to sin. This term here, that we might die to sin, might die, is a um, unique word in the New Testament. It's not the normal word for die. In fact, it's the only time that's used in all of Scripture is right here. It means to be away from or to depart from. So what Peter is saying is the purpose of the substitutionary work of Christ is that we might depart from sin and live to righteousness. It speaks to the sanctifying work, the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. There's an inward transformation that's happening within all of us and is taking place in the heart. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that, yes, we might experience the love of God. Yes, that we might experience the peace of God. Yes, his glorious mercy his grace, of course, hallelujah, amen, all that. But also please notice, he bore our sins 
on the cross that we might die to sin, to depart from the, the sin in our life and live to righteousness. That we might enter into a, a new life pattern that he would have for us. Now, uh, Peter here is again on the same track as Paul. Uh, read Romans chapter 6 and Romans 7. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans 6. 4, Paul says, we are buried therefore with him by baptism, not, not the water one, into his death. We're buried with him in his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's a glorious truth. And that's what Peter means when he says we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Romans 6, 17 through 18. And this is all throughout the two chapters. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So day by day, we are being sanctified. Um, our old self is being buried. It's being transformed through the spirit of Christ. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we have been set free from sin. Not that we are perfect. Not that we don't still have our trials and struggles, but that no longer that sin has power over us, that no longer uh, sin rules our life, that we would die to sin, Peter says, and live and given a new heart that is now obedient to Christ so that we too might walk in newness of life. New life in Christ's life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But why? Why did he do that, you ask? Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What an incredible Savior that we serve. Amen? Well, Right before we move on to our final point, and that one will be a short one, there's one more thing I want to show you. See this line there in, in verse uh, 24? Peter, once again, refers back to Isaiah chapter 53 when he says, By his wounds you have been healed. Now, the word that's used here for wounds means the wounds from his flogging. These are the wounds that Christ suffered as he was scourged to an inch of his life before he was crucified. And this word here, wounds, means from his flogging. It literally means the stripes from scourging. And it communicates the Lord's torn open flesh. The welts that would have been left all over his body. The, the awful scourging that he received. By his wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. Now, Peter's not talking about physical hearing here. Primarily, what's he talking about? He's talking about our spiritual healing, the substitutionary atonement. This really bothers me when, when people twist this around. He, he's talking about transformation from 
from death to life, from sin to death, life to righteousness. He took our place to make that a reality. Yes, there is healing in the atonement. I will not argue that. But primarily this is speaking of our spiritual healing, not our physical healing. One day is coming when we will have no more pain. Physically gone. But physical disease isn't the issue in this text as some contemporary teachers suggest. And listen, we know this, beloved, because if this was the physical healing given to us now in the atonement, no Christian would ever be what? Sick. No Christian would ever die. But spiritually, beloved, oh yeah, you are healed. Healed. We are healed by his wounds. Our Lord suffered. Our Lord suffered. It says in Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So, so he suffered as our standard to show us the passion of, of virtuous suffering in the midst of unjust treatment. He suffered as our substitute, as he took our place and bore our sins. And then finally, number three, he suffered as our shepherd. He suffered as our shepherd. Our last verse, verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. <laughs> and again, Peter still has in mind Isaiah 53. It says actually in Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does that mean? Well, he bore the punishment for us all. The Lord laid on him our iniquity. And because he himself bore our sins, he has made a way for you and I who have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, as sheep tend to do, unaware of the danger we were in. But because Christ the shepherd was the suffering servant and atoned for our sins. He has now provided a path for us to return to the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. The good shepherd goes ahead of them and the sheep follow because they know his voice, John 10. A stranger they simply will not follow. Once the sheep hear the call of the shepherd and overseer of their souls, they will return, beloved. They will return. Would you also notice, please, you have not turned to a system. You have not turned to a religion. You have not returned to a theology, but a person. I love this. But have now returned to the shepherd <laughs> and overseer of your souls. Who is the good shepherd? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that, right? From John's Gospel, chapter 10, right? 
Well, guess what? It's also in Peter's first epistle. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. He calls him the chief shepherd. <laughs> the chief shepherd. And, and by the way, that's a very significant thing because the Old Testament, who was the shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23. So what Peter is saying is Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord. This is affirming his deity, that Jesus is God. The term shepherd is his title. The term overseer or guardian is his function. What is the function of a good shepherd? A, a, a guardianship. He is the shepherd who, who guards and oversees, leads, supervises, watches over the flock, gives his life for the flock. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. For the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus put his life on the line for us to bring us to himself, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered to be our standard. He suffered to be our substitute. He suffered to be our shepherd so as to gather us to himself. Jesus provided the way to glory through suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. Come to Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the overseer of your soul. He is the one who provided the means of salvation. He is the substitute who died in your place. Call the name above all names, the name of Jesus, that he would be Lord over your life. If you need prayers this morning, please come forward. Um, and if your heart's been convicted by hearing the true word of God in the gospel, we'd love to talk to you after the service. And at this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we worship our Lord, King of Kings.